0: Happy Thanksgiving, Patrons, and welcome to a new episode of the Awesome Friday Podcast. Uh, If you're in America, that might be confusing, but it is Canadian Thanksgiving, and we are here talking about the Vancouver International Film Festival as it wraps up for its 2023 edition. Uh, I am your host, as usual, Matthew, and with me, as also as usual, is Simon Say. Good morning, Simon.
1: (laughs) One day I need to introduce you, just for a nice change. Um, hello. Only
0: if you use your flat Canadian accent. Your Pacific Northwest Canadian accent. My,
1: uh, do you really want, You don't want to hear that. No. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I really, really do, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I'll do... Um, I had to be a New York Jew in the 1940s in a play once, so I'll, I'll wheel that accent out of the closet and uh, just wow everyone with that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I had a, a speech coach we have um a yearly think of theater under the stars here which is a big like outdoor musical theater thing which i'm sure you've seen and the the musical theater head woman the head hot show is this wonderful woman called wendy and she was my voice coach for this play when i had to do this this accent and so i did some prep work by um looking at as many different jewish american accents as possible trying to emulate them and um I walked in and demonstrated it to her and she just said No. <laughs> no. <laughs>
0: yeah, I mean I'm no. sure that's I'm sure that's actually a fairly common occurrence that someone says I can no. do that accent and the voice coach goes, Oh for Christ's sake, why yeah, do you Yeah.
1: Do Turns out <laughs> there are multiple <laughs> different Jewish American accents. And uh I was doing completely the wrong one and uh, anyway it worked out well in the end. It worked out so well actually, a Jewish American came to watch the play at the metro if you know you of course you know what the metro theater is um and uh so there's a little bar upstairs afterwards where you can go and have a little drink after the show it's just after so everyone sort of hangs out and uh this the the the, i walked in and the woman was like i think uh, a really good job i went oh thank you very much and the shock on her face (laughs) like to hear and she was jewish american as she thought i was jewish american
0: well, that's the biggest like compliment the you can highest, get, right?
1: Absolutely, the highest accolade. And let me tell you, if she heard me do that accent literally a day after that show wrapped, um, it, she wouldn't have that same opinion. And it's it's uh, it's pretty much not completely now. But that was nice. That was really, really nice. But well, yes, what they
0: say practice, practice practice makes permanent,
1: right? It's it's a <laughs> it's a muscle for sure. They yeah. call it acting. Um. So in in Thanksgiving, these I haven't told you this, but. Uh, Yesterday, my my wife and the kids went on a hike around sea there's a lake up the top of Seymour mountain yep. um, which was advertised as a like one and a half hour walk and it's a it's basically a four hour <laughs> vertical climb up the mountain to this lake anyway um there's maybe I mean, an English that's only totally true because English...
0: you are you are English and and, and have you right.
1: And that's I. so the kids think were fine. I think my wife uh, was a little surprised, but I think it's yes, it's relative to other crazy hikers in this town, it was probably quite easy. But I wasn't feeling good, so I, I hung back and did some other things. And then at 4 30, I decided, well, I think I'm going to make a Thanksgiving dinner. So I went and bought a turkey. I've never bought and cooked a turkey before, and uh, I brought it home at five and then looked up the cooking time for a roast turkey, which is about three and a half hours. And they were coming home for 6.37. So I broke that bird down. I broke it down. I, I called on everything I've seen in Tournament of Champions and beat Bobby Flay. And I, t- I took off the two breasts and the legs and I seared them in in butter and then put a, a bed of onions down and slow roasted that fucker and salt and pepper for an hour and a half. It was amazing. And then made yeah fake fake beer gravy. Turns out, instinctually, I made a great uh, turkey dinner. So that was our Thanksgiving last night.
0: I mean, that sounds uh, tasty, and I'm mm. jealous. Except for that, I'm at my mother in law's house, and we're gonna have a huge fucking turkey for dinner tonight. Yeah. So nice. Thanksgiving is wonderful. So before we move on to the movies we're gonna cover, because we're on a bit of a time crunch today, but let's just say, what are you thankful for in the year in the year of our uh, swift mm. 2023?
1: I, it's just, I mean, it's a cliche now, but healthy, healthy families that's it now. I don't really care about anything else anymore. Like yeah. the whole world's going to shit. It's so hot here at the moment, I've had to change back into shorts and get the aircon back out in October. <laughs> uh, and it, it, which is ridiculous. So the whole world is, uh, we are past the point of no return. So what am I, I am thankful for small things, which is, uh, the health and happiness of my family and my, my wife and my kids. That's. That's it. Yeah, That's all I, was, I really care
0: about. I watched the lo- the local news with my father-in-law last night, and um, the, there was like, during the weather report, there was this weird undercurrent. I hadn't watched like an actual news report, an actual weather report on the news anyway, f- in ages, like an actual full episode of the news. And uh, during the weather report, there was this undercurrent of like, this isn't normal. Like this isn't, like none of this is normal, like I don't know what to do. <laughs> this is a weird undercurrent of everyone just being like, what have we done? What, what have we done? <laughs> it's it's uh, depressing. Um, but I mean, for the same reasons, uh, I'm basically thankful for the same things. Uh, healthy family, big family, everyone in touch, everyone likes each other. Which I don't, this sounds like a, a normal thing, but in my family, not so much. Um and uh you know i'm thankful that we still get to do the stupid show every week and that we have any <laughs> any number of people who listen to us ramble on about film as Which though meant... we had any expertise whatsoever
1: we're very grateful um, for it
0: though yeah um any anything you're thankful for movie-wise
1: um thankful movie-wise
0: or entertainment well i mean it's like I... break it down.
1: I'm thankful for a few moments of Ahsoka where I'm like, oh, this could be where Star Wars could go now. And then it kind of went into traditional Star Wars in the end. But um, there's, there's I, like many of our fans, like we've talked about before, I think I, I'm feeling kind of done with Star Wars re- just circling itself like a vulture over and over and over. I don't have any faith in any of the new films going anywhere new or doing anything interesting. I just don't. Uh, So So every time I see are
0: How is that you being thankful for anything?
1: (laughs) So, so, circling, yeah. (laughs) There were some moments in Ahsoka where uh, some very exciting episodes, really in the middle of that pack, or the first maybe half, where I thought, they're actually doing something a little bit different here, outside of Jedi's and lightsabers. And I really liked... Ray Livingstone's portrayal of um, a baddie who wasn't like trying to be trying to chew the scenery; it was like he was a complex character who'd lost faith. I'm really interested in characters who have lost faith in something, and it defines them. And it's the same with Rogue One as well. And the idea of a Jedi losing faith because the Jedi—it turns out as you get older, you realize the Jedi are, It's just terrible. The whole thing is terrible, and you completely. You, Anakin stops from. Darth Vader stops being this like villain to someone you can actually empathize with which is debatable as to whether that was actually needed in the first place but um I really enjoyed the duo of Ray Livingston and I'm sorry I don't have her name pulled up but the the his sort of padawan I really liked the styling, the high fantasy elements of Ahsoka I thought were fantastic like almost felt kind of 80s Masters of the Universe crawl kind of. Fa- I like fantasy in my sci-fi, obviously, because I like Star Wars. So the um, design decisions to to bring out some stuff from um, the prequel trilogy, which I think has amazing visual design and production design, and to introduce that with like some more suits of armor, like uh, traditional suits of armor for for those two mercenaries. Some really interesting things going on there. Uh, I I'm starting to find the lightsabery stuff the least interesting. So anything beyond that, like Ezra using the Force as some kind of wuxia martial arts it was fantastic. And so any nugget of that I'm thankful for because it makes me feel like I might like Star Wars again mm-hmm. or love it again. What are you thankful for in media?
0: Uh, honestly, um, there's been so many great films that I could talk about, but I'm just going to circle back to we are living in a golden age of Star Trek, which is my favorite thing. <laughs> so we have in this in very much the opposite way of Star Wars. We have an ongoing franchise that has ongoing multiple entries in it, all of which are trying new and interesting, do new and interesting things and pushing the franchise in new and interesting directions. And the franchise just doesn't seem to be afraid to do that. Cause you know, we have strange new worlds, which is basically just the Star Trek classic formula <clears throat> You have Picard, which is cashing in on nostalgia, but also like giving... Uh, it's interesting to say it's giving closure to characters who had a pretty good final episode in their original run, but giving closure to fans, I think, giving something back to fans. And then you have Lower Decks, which is, uh, you know, very... It's, it's very, very makes fun of Star, Star Trek in the way where the people who make it clearly love Star Trek. I don't know if you've watched the most recent episode which is called parth ferengi's heart place but they go to the home planet of the ferengi and they bring back some characters from deep space nine and just everything about it is like so you know when you make fun of a friend and it's from a place of love and you know that like it's because you love that friend that's what lower decks is and i love every second of it and then have discovery which is trying to be uh and i think i like it more than a lot of people do but um even though it can be quite uneven, but like it's trying to be a more modern serialized television show, mm. um, with big sci-fi. The last season was great with its with big sci-fi ideas, um, and the and the decision to cast them into the far future instead of leaving them in the past, like leaving them in, as a prequel, making them a sequel. Um, I think it was super interesting and mm-hmm. dropping them into a universe where the Federation had been completely sundered was super interesting. And I just think that like star Wars is never going to really do. It's weird to say that star Wars isn't going to like break up the main organization of the universe because they have done that, but I don't think they did it in, in such a, in in a very successful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, we live in a golden age of star Trek. How am I going to complain mm-hmm. about that? Like, we have five TV shows right now. It's ridiculous, and like Prodigy isn't on. Was obviously dropped from Paramount Plus, but they made a second season. It will come out eventually. So, uh, I just hope to keep enjoying Star Trek for what it is. It's amazing, and uh, and I love
1: it. Yeah, it seems to have found that really good point of cover versions of itself made by people who understand what it kind of what the heart of it is and how it can be reflected in so many different ways. And and when you think about Discovery versus Strange New Worlds versus uh, Lower Decks, even like Picard in there as well, you've got multiple genres here. Mm -hmm. And yet yet it all feels like the same thing because you really get the feeling, especially with Lower Decks, I have to say, even though I don't understand 99% of the references, you you really get the feeling that it's made by people that grew up on it and really uh, have a deep love and appreciation for it, um, and it, and it also sidesteps that thing where it's it's been reverential but without detriment to the story. I think there's one episode of Lower Decks that I felt like I just didn't get because I hadn't watched Voyager, and the, the most recent. Uh, it might have been the first episode of the new season or the second. Was when they 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 bring they go to a ship dock and they find the Voyager in like a, in the museum dock or something and it's still yeah. there. And they go. Every little panel has. And I'm sure people like you, who know Voyager backwards, like, oh, it's that thing in the Goober. Oh, I love that. And I didn't get like 95 percent of it. I didn't get at all. And I think that's the for me that that balance was off, but the rest is great.
0: Yeah, I mean, they definitely, it's very reverential. I think the big strength is that unlike Star Wars, Star Trek has always been more than one thing. Like Mm -hmm. you watch original Star Trek and you have like submarine combat episodes and also westerns and also Mm -hmm. mano a mano fights with a monster and Mm -hmm. also philosophical discussions and also comedy episodes with small rodents that coo and eat all the grain like it's never been just one thing so it's it allows it to be more than one thing today and i think that also unlike current star wars which seems to be like original star wars was a very much a conglomeration of george lucas's influences Mm -hmm. and current star wars is that too except for that everyone who's making its influences are star wars and while that's also true of star trek i feel like they know they seem aware enough to bring New stories into the universe and do them in a Star Trek way, as opposed to mm. just doing the same shit over and over and over and over again. Mm. And uh, and Lower Decks is probably the most fan servicey of them all because it it makes fun of stuff all the time, um, and mm. but it also like just routinely points out the absurdities of things they've done in Star Trek before. So
1: mm, yeah, I
0: love it. I love it a lot.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's apparent. How many Trek tattoos do you have now? Just the one. The are you wearing a trek t it looks like you're sharing. oh yeah
0: i'm wearing an original series t for an up ep- for the menagerie right now <laughs>
1: it's all between two
0: yeah Beautiful. i would love for you to just watch original series so we could talk about it but you know that's a big ask. i've
1: seen i've seen a lot of original series but i i watched a lot when i was growing up and it was it was on british tv so i have no order, i have no idea of order or, or of anything i've seen I'm not sure it really matters, but
0: it does not. It really doesn't with the original series. It doesn't order doesn't matter until modern TV when we started actually serializing things.
1: I watched enough of the OG series to uh, turn my nose up at um, Next Generation. Like, oh, these aren't these aren't the same. He's not um, Kirk. He's not Spock. <laughs> we all
0: we all did that at first. Yeah. And now it's everyone's most beloved show
1: is it okay is that like the trek favorite do you think
0: i mean it is because right now because the people like when 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 next generation was on tv the people who are going to the main crowd of people who are going to start watching it grew up on original series and the people who are watching new star trek now are people who grew up on 90s trek Mm. so that's you know in the same way that the prequels are among the most popular star wars movies right now because all Mm. the people who were kids when they were new or adults now um yeah it's just that generational turnover thing
1: mm-hmm.
0: anyway there's lots to be thankful for and we're thankful for all of it <laughs> but we have a bit of a time crunch so we should probably move on we are talking about the vancouver international film festival which is having its 43rd uh year this year i think mm-hmm. um how many of these have you attended simon this is my my like virtu- uh,
1: virtually or in person?
0: I uh, yes, however you want to count it. I don't know.
1: God, this is probably my fifth. I want to say two, three, four. It's it's fewer, probably fewer than you. I'd say. Uh,
0: pro- probably.
1: How many is yours? Let's take it from there.
0: I'm just trying to count. uh this is my eighth pretty sure this is my eighth
1: right so this is probably about my fifth
0: yeah because i missed a couple i did i so 2014 15 17 19 20 21 22 23 yes yeah, eight mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and it's a it's been a good festival this year lots of big titles lots of uh, yeah, uh new yeah. new things um a little more of the stuff that TIFF would have got. It's Vancouver is an interesting festival because it comes so late in the festival season that oftentimes the stuff that gets sold um, mm-hmm. or distribution deals at Toronto, your Torontos of the world, um, mm-hmm. already have them by the time they get here. So yeah, there's a, a lot less. Uh, typically, there's a few, a lot fewer like world premieres. There's often like a lot of Canadian premieres, but not a few, very few movies debut here. Mm-hmm. um but that still means we get lots of good films and we're going to talk about three of them today um uh but if you want to read more like if you go to my homepage which is stretch.ca you'll find a couple of links to a couple of reviews in a couple of different places um and before we launch into that that's as good a time as any to remi- remind everyone that all of the movies we're about to talk about would not be possible without the love and care of all of the performers involved therein um and those performers are still on strike as of today as of this recording, and we should stand in solidarity with them, um, as we should with all workers. Um, And uh, I know they're back at the table, or they have been back at the table this week. I've been away, so I'm not 100% up on it, but uh, we hope they get everything they want, as the writers seem to have, Um, because they deserve it. And on a similar note, the Canadian uh, union, which is called ACTRA, uh, they are in dispute with the advertising agencies of Canada, and I hope they get whatever they want to. Fingers um,
1: crossed. Fingers crossed, yeah. Fingers crossed, nice. yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: if you want to support the show, we do, of course, have a Patreon, and a Kofi, you can find links to those in the show notes, um, and for as little as 2 bucks a month Canadian... Uh, you can support the show and get bonus episodes although apologies to patrons because we're on vacation this week there will not be a bonus episode but we'll try and cook something up for you next week okay. um and with all of that out of the way uh let's start talking about some movies so let's start with uh we're going to talk about three movies probably today and um we're going to start with one which is an uh, actually an espn 30 for 30 produced sports documentary uh which we both i think wanted to talk about because it's something that we both lived through uh which yeah. is i'm just here for the riot which uh is directed by kathleen James and asia youngman kath kat jame um also produced two other documentaries which i've seen and liked called uh searching for big country and the grizzly truth so she has a real th- theme of vancouver-based sports documentaries um but this one is about the 2011 stanley cup riot that happened in vancouver which we were both present for um and it's a pretty standard talking heads documentary um lots of people speaking about the, the tone of the city and about how how the riot went down and where it went down And I don't know if you're familiar. For those of you who maybe aren't familiar, in 2011, the Vancouver Canucks made it to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup versus Boston, playing at home. And uh, very famously and very embarrassingly for the city, uh, the Canucks lost. Uh, And that's not the embarrassing part. The embarrassing part is that um, there was a huge fucking riot. And... Because we lost, and something like 120 cars were damaged, well over 100, and 100 people, I think closer to 150 people were injured, um, over 100 people were arrested on the day, and something like three or 400 people were arrested or charged with something in the days and weeks and months following. Um, it was a huge black mark on Vancouver's reputation as a city, to say mm-hmm. the very, very least, and uh this documentary i think had the potential to be something really interesting and special and i think that it does a really good job of talking about how exactly the riot went down um and where and that it was embarrassing and i think it really fails in two very specific ways personally one is that it does not do a very good job interrogating the why of it all like why did we have this riot? it does not make sense there's lip service paid to the idea the feeling that i distinctly remember personally i don't know how you feel about this simon but like i distinctly remember there being on the day of the last game like either we win or we riot like it was gonna like people wanted to riot it was a there was a a distinct tone shift in the city and i feel like the film does not get into that like at all um Even though it does get into, like, social media, uh, the social media effect, which is still relatively new at the time, and also into, like, the idea of mob mentalities, but then it also has a number of talking heads, many of whom were sports commentators, many of whom were people who were on the ground and, like, trying to stop the riot. And then it also talks to a bunch of people who were rioters, and it tries to make me have sympathy for those people, and my two-word review of that is, fuck that. Yes. So... I think it's a very well-produced, technically documentary, and I think it fails, and I feel, it feels like a big missed opportunity, and it's very disappointing as a result. I don't know. How do you feel about it?
1: Uh, I, I mean, you said everything. Uh, the, uh, I agree with that, everything you said. I think what I didn't know is that there was an identical riot in ninety four ninety four
0: 94.
1: Game, game 7 against Boston. So, uh, is seven the last one? Is that when you win the cup after game seven, or is that? Is yeah, that the, like Stanley, the, the Stanley.
0: The Stanley Cup is a best of seven series, right, so game okay. seven is the last game oh, that we right, won.
1: Right. Right. So and and watching the footage uh, of it happening, it was like it could have been the same riot and for the same reasons. And so there are some definitely some interesting parts of the documentary. It initially starts going into um, what causes people to rage and how. Uh, I'm really interested in the in the group psychology of mob mentality. I'm really really interested in that, um, in it and in literature as well. Books like uh, um, uh, Lord of the Flies deals with that really really well. And I I was really interested when they started diving into that, and then they kind of stopped because it seemed like the rest of the documentary's focus was on speaking to the writers, and so fairly as is they got these people on camera, some of them blurred, some of them not, uh, to talk about their experiences, but it, as you said, like f- for whatever reason, they decided their unique selling angle would be to uh, allow these writers to play the victim card, so there was a lot of, of people picking us up because we were writing, or people were being nasty to us on the internet, which makes them as bad as the writers, and and I'm just like, are you fucking kidding me? Because I, I remember that night really, really well. Um, I was living um, on the edge of Chinatown, so I could see and hear it out my window. It was just over the viaduct, if you know Vancouver. Uh, and just I just remember getting angrier and angrier at the absolute senseless idiocy uh, of what was happening in my city. And also... Um, the there was at one point because I was on Twitter a lot at that point, and at one point they uh, they moved towards the library, and there was a bunch of people going fuck it we got to go in, like they are wrecking downtown. We can't let them wreck the library, and I I was really close to going out, uh, and uh, then it all sort of fizzled out before they got to the library. And for this documentary to have such a strong focus on, but what what about them? They are victims of our culture too. I thought was really misguided. Like I don't care that they have repercussions from being documented rioters. That they didn't think about all the photos that were being taken, even for a second. And also mob mentality is one thing, but you know I've I've been part of a a crowd that is that that's turned nasty, and I've I've never once decided. I oh, I think I'll uh, I think I'll smash some windows, and yeah. top this car it's... over. Like I don't buy it. I don't accept it. And I don't. I, I there's no part of um, the, their victim story that I really care about that or oh, people were nasty to you on social media who gives a shit is because you you destroyed you the goddamn it. city you just, like you, you, you took you a bunch of people's cars over and took pictures in front of it I don't fucking care that you were dumped by your sports teams because you were wearing their shirt when you took a photo in front of a burning cop car I'd be fucking who like to fuck around and find out and if you if you can't deal with the finding out part of that process then then we've all learned something today but um i uh, another thing i think it missed out on was that really interesting moment of social media first like the difference between 94 and now is the social media aspect and that pictures were everywhere and groups of angry people like i was angry were naming and shaming as they should have for who these people are. Like, there's got to be repercussions for things like that. So there's so much in Vancouver that it goes unpunished, like antisocial behaviour in Vancouver that goes completely unaddressed. And and I think people are quite frustrated at that. I totally agree with you. I would have loved more on the build up to the 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 flip. Like what what was the kindling? We got a lot of the uh the riot. In fact within the first 10, 15 minutes of the um, documentary, you've had your riot section and the rest of the documentary is all yeah. about the after effects. And it was a huge missed opportunity and really misguided for me.
0: Yeah, and like maybe at the same time, like I'll fully admit I have a hard, I would have a hard time feeling sympathy because they like, there's, footage, it's not, I don't think it's in the movie if I remember correctly, but like I was working in a in a place downtown, in a store downtown at the time and that store got looted and people i know were like huddled in the safe room (laughs) like fearing for their safety as the store got destroyed and anyone who's like oh poor me i got i got you know outed as being a rioter like yeah fuck you go ahead like and our our entire justice system is predicated on the idea that people can change so like If you got caught, if you got arrested and charged with being a writer and you served your time, that's great. But you still did it. Like, I think you can change as a person, but I don't think you get to be like, oh, poor me about it. Like, no, that's just not how the world works. Like, this is still a thing that happened to you. You can be a good person now. And I think another major failure of the documentary is that none of the people who they spoke to who were rioters first off just none of them would cop to being instigators which i think is a pretty massive feeling but who's going to cop to that right um so sort of a flawed premise but then also like none of them it didn't ask any of them like what have you done since like you obviously made this huge mistake you've been named shamed potentially arrested and done time or paid fines for it what have you done since to be a better person? What have you learned from the experience? And literally all of them are just like, oh, poor me, I shouldn't have been outed. Like, it's just such a, such a massive disappointment, such a massive failure. There is, there is one really good moment during that section where there's a woman talking about how like, she's like, I don't think it was fair. You know, I was at the game and then I went outside and then I was in one photo and I was named and shamed and ostracized by my community. And it cuts to the photo and she's arm in arm with a dude wearing a balaclava and a shirt that says, I'm just here for the riot. And like, I'm sorry, that's a pretty damning photo. <laughs> mm. Like, why would you do that? Like, what kind of and there's there's so much so many more questions that could be interrogated about this whole thing. And it's just it doesn't do any of it. And I feel like in these in the with the intent of trying to be like objective about it, they lost the plot. And it's just very disappointing as a result. And a huge missed opportunity.
1: Yeah. Um, it was a great opportunity to maybe examine the connections between the uh, position of we win or we riot and connect it to the violence that's inherent in North American ice hockey. Because uh, as a foreigner, as an immigrant, watching my first hockey game, and the fight is then refereed and cheered on, I'm still horrified that that is allowed um there's no other sport in the world where f- fighting between teams is treated in such a way and it's not actually allowed when hockey goes international it's not allowed it's, anymore it's not this even hockey North outside America. of North America yeah it's it's, it's just North American <clears throat> hockey and and ju- uh, very similarly there's been lots of studies between uh like I'm from England I grew up in the 80s hooligan culture around football was a massive problem we rioted all the time and it was it it, um completely linked to the racism and violence that was associated with the game and that's been pretty systematically stamped out in in many different parts of the culture completely um banned on many many levels and it has made a difference on the the english uh culture of hooliganism unfortunately in, in parts of Eastern Europe, it's it's really really bad still. But uh, I would have loved to see, uh, just like you said, like the wise of it is the the acceptance of fighting in hockey. Is could that be linked to the acceptance of fighting if we lose? Like I would love to see those kind of questions uh, raised because they're questions I have too.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, for me, this is a two star documentary, unfortunately, and I really liked the Grizzly Truth. Um, Especially, but yeah, it's a two-star for me. How about for you?
1: Yeah, it's two stars for me as well. It's Huge potential and some really interesting points, but then just completely lost it, I thought.
0: Yeah. Well, let's move on. We're going to talk about, again, at least two more movies, but let's talk about... um, (laughs) This is one that I really wanted to cover because um, for me, it was a very emotional experience watching it. And for you, you've never heard of the subject of this documentary. <laughs> yeah. um, and this movie is called Mr. Dress Up, The Magic of Make-Believe. And so for, for our listeners who are outside of Canada, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't know what the UK comparison would be, but Mr. Dress Up is effectively our Mr. Rogers. And in fact, Mr. Dress Up and Mr. Rogers were like friends and like longtime collaborators. And Mr. Dress Up ran for 29 years from 1967 to 1996. If you are of a certain age in Canada, that means that you grew up watching Mr. Dress Up, like full stop. So I grew up in Canada. I was born in 81. He was on the air till 96. It's a preschooler show, so I probably watched it all the way to uh i probably the late 80s early nine probably not into the early 90s but i definitely watched it all through the 80s um and this is just the story of ernie coombs um who is children's entertainer mr dress up who had a lovely show on tv that was all about doing crafts and being kind and i don't want to spoil any of it for you because i think it's a really good documentary but also i was weeping by the end of it um mm-hmm. Because it, it you know at the end of his life he was a happy person the whole, whole life he didn't have any major like tragedy his wife p- passed away in the nineties and he had a fairly good like resolution to his life in the in the end of the nineties early early two thousands but um just going through like revisiting any amount of Mister Dress Up and the things he went through in the nineties was it was just. It was just so emotional for me, just having it yeah. all come back. I can't imagine what this movie would be like not having that context, which is why I wanted to talk about it. Because yeah. what was this? Because I mean, uh, without that context, my my impression is that this is basically like very nice man, the documentary, <laughs> right? Like,
1: I mean, it, it very much was, but that didn't really lessen it, um, it the effect of it. Uh, I, on your first point. the problem is we have many English parallels and they keep getting arrested because it turns out they are pedophiles and, and it just happens over and over and over with your Jimmy Savills and your Rolf, and Rolf Harris, I know he's Australian, but he was, he was very similar position to Mr. Dress Up for us in, um, in the UK, in terms of creative, like teaching through creativity and arts and crafts and um, calm and being nice and and uh, that that when when the truth came out about Rolf Harris, that hurt. And Jimmy Savile was an institution of kid kindness, and it turns out terrible, terrible human being. So, what was really nice, like spoiler, turns out um, Ernie. Bleh,
0: Coombs, Ernie Coombs
1: Ernie Coombs had no skeletons in his closet whatsoever and I was so thankful for that I didn't, <laughs> every time there's one of these documentaries about our guys you get to three quarters of the way in and the music changes and you're like oh here we go turns out he had three terabytes of child porn um, and it was very satisfying for it to become apparent that this is just who he was and he, he was not, there was no darkness to him at all So it was very, very interesting coming at this, never having heard of him at all before. I, of course, knew Mr. Rogers, but I had no idea who this person was. And uh, what I really, what got me actually was not as nostalgic as I have none, obviously, for I did not grow up watching this guy. I could imagine I have empathy for you watching this because this whole thing is like, it's a kind of childhood that just doesn't exist anymore, even for the kids now. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of slow. I mean, part of the documentary was about the introduction of Sesame Street, the American influence on these slower kids shows and uh, how they stood their ground against it, which I thought was lovely. And um, I, I can imagine the feeling of watching this documentary and just, it's like when you dream of being back in a snowy, like, Christmases when I were young were, were like a magical fairyland compared to the Christmases now because they are drenched in nostalgia and I'm sure that's how it felt watching this as well. It it makes you yearn for something that's just gone now. For for us and for everyone else growing up. It's just gone. That kind of slow kindness doesn't exist. And I think that's one of the main things I took away is that as an as someone who's been in education for for multiple decades now, you can draw a line. Between uh, TV programming that states kindness and empathy as being the key human traits—kindness, creativity, empathy, calm, listening—like these shows stopped, and the society changed. Mm-hmm. And you can see that connection. You can draw a line with modern cynicism of of adults back to even things like. South Park South Park was a um, I know this is a long time after this ended but um the 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 whole culture of what TV teaches children changed after really 9 uh, 11 <laughs> like mm-hmm. the, the fact that he died <clears throat> I think the day before that like uh I don't I it's a universal consequence and coincidence that i'm not willing to overlook like it's there's so much changed at that time and um i i i as someone who believes that kindness is the most important thing you can have for people around you mm-hmm. it's it was lovely it was really lovely and what actually i got emotional at was obviously not nostalgia but it was the reactions of older people seeing him and seeing them turn into children again and the messages from the parents uh phoning in and just saying thank you just thank you <laughs> not just for what you do for my kids but what you did for me like that mm-hmm. gratitude of so many lives changed just from being kind and just from from being creative to the the two most important things that have always been for me and uh the the last 25 minutes of this documentary is hard it's really really hard because good bad things happen to good people and uh i i I I i've real trouble justifying when really bad things happen to people who've spent their whole life being kind and good to others like i i want to believe in karma i want to believe in karma and yeah the stuff that
0: the stuff that happens to him is nobody's fault though like but that's I mean, not exactly, right? Like the he... whole
1: idea—the whole idea of karma—is that you put good out, you get good back, and and so for someone who spends his whole life putting good out, and for his whole life to fall apart in one night, when it's... well, anyway, you'll you'll see when you watch it. Yeah, I, I mean, I it's, found, not, found it's no, emotional... it's,
0: it's no secret that his wife passes away, and yeah. very tragically oh, okay. passes I away.
1: Did, I didn't, I didn't know, but yeah, like it was it was
0: national news at the time, right? Um, as evidenced by the documentary, like it's, there's news reports of it in, yes. in the documentary and, I, and, I didn't and, know like, yeah. And, um, and just the fact that he carried on too, like, the, I got very yeah. emotional. There's a, he does a performance with another famous Canadian oh, children's entertainer Fred
1: Perry. called
0: Fred Penner, where they sing a song together and it's like days after his wife has passed oh, away. God, and that yeah. whole section is, but the part that really got me and not to be super, super spoilery about it, but like, there's a, the last like five minutes of this documentary, is basically just all of the talking heads turning to the camera and saying thank you, and I just yeah. wish that I had had the opportunity to do the same, because yeah. um, it's amazing how many people he impacted, and uh, I'm getting teary just talking about it because it's it's so such an important part of the childhood, and I feel like you know Fred Rogers' legacy has somewhat continued like you have your peg and cat and daniel tiger and all this stuff that your kids have watched that's all from fred rogers media i feel like we don't have the same from the cbc with mr dress up and i feel like we should and uh, i think it's a shame that we don't
1: so peg peg plus cat is uh, mr rogers i didn't know that
0: yeah it's fred rogers media um they do uh the big, the big two, I think, are Daniel Tiger's, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, yeah. uh, and Pegan Cat. But they also do like Odd Squad and a few other ones.
1: Pegan Cat is fantastic television. Yeah. really, really good. I don't know if you've ever like watched it, but it's fantastic.
0: I have watched it with your children. Yeah, <laughs> so, <Okay>. yeah. <laughs> It's brilliant!
1: It's really brilliant.
0: Yeah, um, but yeah, so uh, I feel like the, the man has a legacy, but maybe not the entirety that he deserves. But yeah, the last, mm-hmm. the last twenty minutes of this movie. Uh, and the last five in particular. Mm. If you are a Canadian of a certain age, I guarantee you it's going to make you cry. Yeah. Um, so as a result, uh, I'm giving this movie four stars.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a four star for me as well. Absolutely. It's uh, even even with the nostalgia element removed, it was lovely to see uh, the effect he had on so many generations, on so many people, and but on a larger point as well. I love the story about the one of the bare naked ladies who I thought weren't speaking to each other, but they're all there. one of the bare, one of the bare naked ladies is like, yeah, I went for a beer with him and uh, tried to throw my bottle caps away and he put them in his pocket and went like, keep those for crafting. And I just love, (laughs) I love like that echoes a lot with me, especially with kids now with with my kids. I'm always looking for things to small cheap things just to show them they can be anything they want. And, uh, It was, uh, I just love how his show was about how to be creative and how to be kind. And it was just lovely, really nice. I really, really enjoyed as well the difference between the scripted episodes and then they just realised he wasn't good on the scripts. They just let him go. They just let them improvise. And, um, of course, he, as he kept thanking his team, the, the, uh, the, the puppeteer, the various puppeteer women who were all, Brilliantly funny and they were just sparking off each other and you could hear the difference between the, the scripted mm-hmm. and non-scripted. It just it was lovely. It was really, really nice.
0: Yeah. I loved all the sections that had to do with um just adults still connecting with them. He'd go do a live show and the crowd would be full of adults <laughs> just being coming to see Mr. Dress Up or there was a yeah, yeah. or uh that section with Jonathan Torrens who um those of you who don't know he's a Canadian personality and actor but he had a when he was in his early 20s he had like a kid focused talk show called Jonovision and he did an episode where he brought up like 80s childhood heroes so there was like Sharon Lewis and Bram and a bunch of other like Canadian entertainers but when Mr. Dress Up comes up comes out the crowd goes <laughs> fucking nuts yeah. and that ended up being his highest rated episode of all time like uh, the man had a real a, a real effect on Canadian culture and I think that that I think the documentary does a very good job of highlighting that. That's what I'm trying to say.
1: There was a, a woman in this called Patty Sullivan, actually, that I used to watch when my kids were very, very young. And then she left, and I haven't seen her since. So it was really nice to see her still looking fantastic and and just uh, being healthy. And I think there's there's room to bring back Patty Sullivan's TV, because I think she had a very similar kind of vibe as well. Uh,
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we need more of that kind of stuff in the world, Yeah, very generally speaking.
1: Yes, we do. Yeah. So yeah, full stars for me too. Very nice.
0: Excellent. Well, let's move on to another movie. We're running short on time, but um, this one's probably the bigger release. This one, you can mm-hmm. actually see it's actually out as of today. Um, as of this recording, it's been out in cinemas this whole weekend um, from Elevation Pictures and Neon in the States. Um, it is an Australian thriller called The Royal Hotel. Um, and since I gave the lowdown on the first two, why don't you do yes. us the, <laughs> Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> this is the only one I can really speak about. Um, Royal Hotel is about two um, women, uh, Hannah and Liv, played by Julia Gardner and Jessica Henwick, who are both fantastic in this movie. And it's good because they, they carry it. Um, they're um, two Americans who are in Australia just having a good time, just traveling the world. And they realize in the middle of a, a boat party cruise that they're out of money so they sign up with an agency to go and do some uh, to go and work in a pub and they're the only thing that's open is this um this mining uh area with a pub in it that's like two hours away from the nearest any kind of building whatsoever it's right out in the in the sticks in the bush and um they're they told that like it could get a little a little male out there, so be careful. And that's really the theme of the whole movie. It does get a little male out there, yeah, <laughs> uh, just a yeah, little bit, sh- little bit male. And so basically, they turn up at this dilapidated like building in the middle of nowhere and have to put up with the clients. And basically, without really spoiling anything, um, they have to deal with this stomach churning, growing knot in the stomach of men being men uh, who uh, miles from nowhere, miles from consequences, miles from judgment um,
0: Miles away from culture having learned about feminism or yeah, me too or, 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 or any or of even, that.
1: even beyond that just basic like politeness <laughs> uh, yeah. and um, you you what I really really liked about this film, is that it didn't go down the route that I was expecting, which was to turn it into almost like a slasher or a, um, a captive story or have uh, like a Scream-style climax where the, the men weren't uh, stereotypically characterized as uh, murder killers. They were just like just horny, dudes. horny, obnoxious men. And that actually made it a million times worse. By the end of this film, like, uh, I just felt like my stomach had been tight for the last hour and a half and just getting tighter and tighter as these two girls get in more and more situational danger like there's a lot of there's a lot of Ralph Wiggum in this. Oh, I'm in danger. Like there's a lot, <laughs> and you can see it. And what's really interesting is that the the dynamic between Liv and Hannah is really interesting. And in that Liv's more more footloose and trusting, but Hannah can kind of see the breaking point of everything around her and all the injuries that happen, all the things, all the bad things that happen that are terrible are are almost not done on purpose by the men but they it's their fault and so they try and excuse it all as well it's just like a woman in modern society simulator and it was so much more effective because of it because it didn't turn into a slasher movie or or like a horror movie or a captive movie it was just these two women around men who are getting more precocious and more drunk as the nights go past uh I thought it's Fucking fantastic. Like it's yeah, really I mean, it's really well shot as well.
0: I wrote a review of this movie already um, for for real. And um my opening paragraph is basically to, to break it down to one sentence is like it drops two women into the most dangerous place that two young women could end up. A remote <laughs> town full of horny entitled men. Yes. <laughs> like um, and I think you hit basically the nail on the head with all of your points here that like um it's scary because it's just like that is what small towns full of men are like especially like work towns Uh, I don't know how much time you spent in a town like that but when you go to a place that's just like the bar near a mine or or a clear cut or any kind of like you know high pay or the oil rigs I'm sure the bars near the oil rigs are like this there are like this in Alberta too that like you get a whole bunch of horny frustrated dudes together um and just it goes south so quickly um mm. i like that there are there's basically four main men in this movie and each of them are a different type of terrible man mm. um uh what's that clicking um, sorry
1: that's me trying to relight something
0: okay um yeah there's four men each of whom are great including apparently you didn't even recognize hugo weaving in this movie as the drunk man car because, owner he's I he's mean, he's so good and he's so australian as well
1: that won't be the first time there's another movie oh god years and years ago i won't bother looking it up now but i had the same reaction like watching the entire movie and then learning as hugo weaving like he is so good in this film and yeah. completely unrecognizable for me
0: yeah and then the film also does a couple of really smart things i think um one of which is that it 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 spends the first few minutes really trying to subvert what would be your normal expectations. Like, so not only is it not a slasher, but like when they get to the middle of nowhere, they're dropped literally by the side of the road. And then a, then a broke down car picks them up, but it's not some like foreboding man. It's just like Mm. super practical truth speaking woman who picks them up. Mm. Um, and the hotel is not some kind of like ruin it's dilapidated. It's run down, but it's not like a ruin. It's not like, kind of place you'd see and go nope <laughs> you know yeah. like in so many horror movies um, and there's a lot of moments like that where yeah. at the beginning where it's it's sort of telling you that like this is kind of going to be kind of normal um, oh. because then it is just totally normal that all these entitled men are terrible to them um, I think in particular a lot of people are probably going to talk there's a couple of men again in the movie but I think a lot of people are going to talk about uh, the character Dolly, who's played by an actor mm. called Daniel Henshaw, who is the psychopath one. He's the one who, like, at the beginning, he's inappropriately intense. And uh, ten minutes after the beginning, he's a psychopath. Um, But I think, honestly, my favorite of the men in the movie was uh, the character Teeth, who's played by a guy called mm. James Fretchville, and he's mm. just mm. the kind of slow one who sits at the bar and thinks if he sits there and is sort of nice and helpful enough, eventually one of them will just, uh, live in particular, will just sleep with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when that doesn't happen and he eventually explodes into violence, as they all do in
1: mm-hmm. different
0: ways, um, it becomes the most... Um, the way... I don't want to spoil it, but the way that his outburst is framed is super interesting and super yeah, effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and,
1: and And very, very modern as well it felt really really real and he his the way his character unravels is the the kind of thing women have been saying a lot in the last couple of years of the 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 nice guy issue like yeah. the entitled person because i'm nice it, and it turns out is it's a cover for this entitled rage that it's just not yeah. happening and it's very well done.
0: Yeah. And then, um, oh, and the other thing I was going to say, the other like expectation subversion is that like they get there and they're replacing two other women and those other women aren't like, they're drunk and like they're, but they're not really, they seem to be enjoying their time. Like they're Mm -hmm. not, they obviously are, they clearly have, there's a couple of moments where you're like, are they enjoying their time? But it's not like they don't appear to be in any immediate danger and they appear to be enjoying the, being the center of attention. So Mm it's a it's a very interesting setup and by the time the movie ends you're, you're right like henwick and gardner are spectacular henwick's character is clearly running from something and it's never really told what she's running from but it does make she's the one who makes mm-hmm. most of the bad choices and all of them are believable based on what we do know and then gardner threads this this line of being basically the smart one smart's the wrong word but basically like the aware one because she's not running and she has to like ping pong back and forth between forceful and vulnerable in such a way that like you realize now that like why she won three Emmys for Ozark. Right. Cause she's, she's so good at that ping pong in this movie. It's, it's something else to watch.
1: It's really well plotted in that the, um, the pacing wise it builds to a crescendo slowly and I think it's very very clever how it's written and how it how the the scenes that kind of build on each other is a bit uh it's a little bit of a frog in a hot pot kind of situation as the each thing is slightly worse than the last Um, and the the thing at the as you get towards the end if that had been one of the first things that had happened they would just leave immediately but because it's a a stairway of terrible things that have been incrementally slightly worse than each other. The whole film for an hour and a half takes you up this, this tightening until you realize that they are in actual real danger because of all the other things that have led up to it and because they're so isolated. And yet it doesn't, it doesn't turn it into a demonized men story. It makes it into a entitled horny men story. And yeah. it's um, there's it, it when uh, I've closed the cast list now, but when Julia's character, when Hannah has this moment of like, just done like near the end of the movie it, and it's in total darkness and she something's just happened. And she she is very, very aware that things have now gone very, very south.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And she uh, there's a moment where she expresses something that is my favorite moment in film so far this year just yeah. the truth of it is incredible and uh it's very very hard to get a reaction like that right without it sounding overdone or, or uh inauthentic and it's brilliant i mean she's brilliant i loved uh, jessica henwick as well interesting character some interesting character work as well because at the beginning she's shown to be a bit shy around men and then when she gets she, she's the main proponent for going out to this pub and then she, through I think alcohol, becomes a lot more open with men and and I like also how we don't know that she's clearly running as fast as she can from something yeah. but we don't know what it is and I just think the whole film is just that well written and the uh, it's a really good combo, of brilliantly written well paced, well directed, brilliantly acted and just gut-wrenchingly uh terrifying mm-hmm. really at the end really scary for them at the end
0: yeah it's uh, it's probably one of the better movies i've seen all year yeah. to be honest um and it's been a pretty good year for for film so that's a, a pretty big uh piece of praise i would say um
1: how many stars are you going to give royal hotel
0: uh, it's a four for me. There's uh, a outside chance mm-hmm. it might go up if I watch it again. When I watch it again, because I certain because my wife didn't get to see it, so uh, mm-hmm. or did she? Anyway, anyway, um, we'll almost certainly watch it again, mm-hmm. um, because uh, it is so good, and yeah. I can't, uh, I can't wait to see what Julia Garner does next, and also Kitty Green, who directed and co-wrote this, can't wait to see what she does next. Um,
1: number before?
0: Kitty Green did a film a couple years ago called The Assistant, which treads on some fairly similar ground about a a woman, woman played by Gardner Garner, who is a assistant to a high powered executive who's very nakedly meant to be like a Harvey Weinstein. Um,
1: Oh, Oh, is that her? Right. Um,
0: yeah. So like that's four stars all around. Well, yeah. So VIF this year was good. We saw a lot of films, uh, but these are three we wanted to talk about. Um, but if you live in Vancouver, like definitely you should go to Vancouver to VIF. It's great every year, and uh, we have to wrap it up there because we're coming up against the time constraint. So thank you so much to everyone who is listening. Again, if you want to, if you like the show and you want to support it, you can do so uh, via Patreon or Ko-Fi, and you can find those in the show notes. Normally, uh, patrons do also get a bonus episode. Apologies again that there isn't one this week. <clears throat> uh, if you'd like to find us, you can find us on. various socials but there's too many of them so you can find simon at at temporarypen.com and me at stretched.ca and you can find all of our recent work and our social connections there at those places uh and last but not least we record in vancouver on the unceded and ancestral territory of the musqueam and waututh and squamish nations um And that is all of our show. Thank you so much for listening and for joining us on this Thanksgiving weekend on this awesome Friday.
1: Thanks, bye.